And now we are going to turn to that wonderful word, that sacred word that God has given to us where we find instruction and encouragement and uh, training in righteousness, all of those things that the scripture is to us and for us. Uh, we find in every aspect of the Word, and this morning to Romans chapter 7, we turn and we'll read this morning the entire chapter. We won't be looking at the entire chapter, we'll just be looking at the first six verses, but let's read the entire chapter as we come to this fresh new chapter here in the book of Romans as we work our way through it. Romans chapter 7, this is God's Word to us today. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, O God, that you would teach us through it. We pray in this passage that we look at this morning that your spirit would be the one to teach us. We pray that we might come away understanding these things better than when we came in this morning, and and may that redound to your glory, O Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned this morning, we are going to begin a look at this fresh new chapter here, a chapter that is particularly well known in the church for that second half that we read Uh, specifically, which engenders a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy, and we'll discuss that when we get there. It's easy in looking at that, especially that second chapter, to sort of have that second half of the chapter suck all of the air out of the room uh, so that when we're discussing which Paul is speaking there, 
that, that can really detract from the primary subject of this chapter. And the primary subject of this chapter is the Christian and the law, the relationship that those who are in Christ have with the law of God. That's what we're going to look at. It's very clear that, that, is a, that the law is a primary topic in this chapter. The word law occurs in this one chapter 23 times. That's a lot for, for one word in one chapter. And, and if you add uh, the other word, the commandment, uh, that's a particular aspect of law referring to it, that's another six times. And so you've got 29 mentions of God's law in this one chapter here. So it's fairly easy to see that the law of God is, without a doubt, the primary focus of this passage. Like I said, we're not going to look at the whole passage. Uh, We're going to do well enough just to get through the first six verses this morning. But let's look at an overview of this chapter. It breaks down into three sections, basically. First, which we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 6, there Paul gives a general statement describing and explaining the Christian's past and present relationship to the law, specifically how it is that Christians who have died to sin have, in a very important and specific sense, also died to the law. We'll see what that means this morning. Then in verses 7 through 12, just so that no one gets the wrong idea about Paul and God's attitude toward the law and the, the worth of the law and the goodness of the law, in those verses Paul then gives a vindication of God's law. And then in verses 13 through 25, Paul gives a very practical example of what it means for a Christian to be free from the law and yet to face the ongoing struggle of of giving proper service to the law as a sinful person. And obviously this is all going to take us a few weeks to get through. But this morning we'll start with verses 1 through 6 and the topic of the Christian and his relationship to the law. And this comes, this discussion, this chapter comes on the heels of Paul's discussion in chapter 6 of the believer's relationship to sin. Uh, which was covered there throughout chapter 6, and, and comes, remember, this does as part of Paul's parenthetical section in chapter 6 and 7. Uh, remember, Paul is here answering objections to, regarding his teaching on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which has been his subject since the beginning or the middle of chapter 3. And this topic comes up in response, this topic in chapter 7, comes up in response really uh, or anticipation to questions that would come up regarding or coming from several statements that Paul has made about the law in chapter 6 and in chapter 5 really. In chapter 5 in verse 20, Paul said, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then in chapter 6, and especially this, in verse 14, look at it there, Paul said at the end of that section, he said, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now both of those statements, uh, properly understood, could lead someone, especially Jewish Christians, who, who would have... In, in not just as, as Christians, but in their, their history and their, their people, a, a very high and extraordinarily high view of the law of Moses. And those statements could lead some of those types of people to see Paul as sort of giving the law the apostolic brush off. And so Paul turns his attention, as we've said to this whole cha- in this whole chapter, to the place of the law. And as Paul gets ready to to do that, as we get ready to take a look at that, let's take just a moment and define what we mean by the law, because it's used in different ways in the Scripture, refers to different things. What does it mean in this context? We're going to see a couple of different ways. Uh, We use the term a lot, um, but let me just take just a moment to remind you what the law is in regard to the Scripture in a biblical context. It 
refers to the regulations that God himself gave to his people, gave to Moses and through Moses, uh, especially as it was recorded back in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, We've mentioned so many times in the past, I'll mention it one more, that wherever in Scripture God commands something, that is God's law coming to us. Uh, But those books, particularly that special time when God's law was being codified and given to the people, uh, it can be broken down into three basic types of law that you see in the Old Testament. The first is the moral law, the moral law. And this is what we usually think of when we think of God's law, when we say God's law. Primarily, God's moral law is embodied in the Ten Commandments, uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God reflects God's nature and is binding, therefore, on all people everywhere at all times. Because God does not change, His moral law does not change. Its its applicability to us, its place uh, in our lives does does not change. It does not go away. The moral law of God is still in effect. And that is to be contrasted with the other two types of God's law. The second type of law is what's called the ceremonial law. Many of you are familiar with that. These are the regulations that were given to God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament to regulate worship in the Old Testament. The primary part of the ceremonial law was the sacrificial system. The temple and the priests, the high priest, the sacrifices uh, for sin and for thanksgiving. Uh, All of these things in the Old Testament were the means of dispensing forgiveness of sin and a relationship with God was done through this sacrificial system, through all of these ceremonial aspects of, of God's law. All of these sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, the sacrifice for sin, think of the Day of Atonement and the sacrifices of that day. All of those sacrifices and ceremonies and the priests that conducted them all point forward to the work of Christ who was to come. That's their purpose. That's their their terminus. And because they pointed to Christ, when Christ came finally and fulfilled all of those things and did in reality what they did in shadow, the ceremonial law with the death of Christ ceased to, to function. It was ended forever. We don't have the ceremonial law anymore. We don't do sacrifices. We don't have priests anymore. So the second type is the ceremonial law. The third type is called the civil law. This one is probably the least uh, known in the church even. These are regulations that were given to God's people of Israel as Israel, as that nation. God gave these specific aspects of his law uh, in a way that regulated that society under the, the theocracy of Old Testament Israel. And since we do not live in the theocracy of Old Testament Israel, even Israel doesn't live in a theocracy of Old Testament Israel anymore, the civil law is also not binding on the church or the culture today. So the civil law and the ceremonial law have been done away with, abrogated, we say, repealed, but the moral law continues, and it will continue. As long as this world continues and and on into eternity, God's moral nature um, will not change. And so the the requirements of his people will not change. And it is that law, the moral law, that is the subject of Paul's comments in this chapter. And it is our relationship as Christians to the moral law that Paul is concerned here uh, that we understand. Because... In regard to the law, people have misunderstood it, have misapplied it, have have erred in in two big ways in regard to God's moral law. And from now on, I'm just going to say the law, not the moral law, unless there's something specifically different. The first way that people have erred is that people, many people believe 
that we need to keep the law in order to be right with God. That, that we can keep it well enough that we can be right with God through it. That the means of salvation is through doing the works of the law. Those are what we call the legalists. The Jews in Jesus' day, the Jews in Paul's day, were primarily of this view that there are that the salvation came by or partly by doing the works of the law. And Jesus and Peter and Paul were always fighting this battle against the legalists and explaining to them um, the truth of salvation not by works of the law, but by grace through faith in Christ. That's one misunderstanding. The other one we've already touched on, and these are the people that believe that since Christ has died and since the gospel has come to proclaim justification by grace alone, that we no longer need to be concerned with the law at all, that it doesn't have anything to do with us, that we can um, throw it off completely, throw off its regulations, and these people, we've said before, are called the antinomians, those who are contrary or against the law. Remember, these are those that Paul has been dealing with really in chapter 6. The antinomian says from chapter 6, we can sin, we should continue in sin so that grace may increase. And in verse 15 of chapter 6, they said that we should sin because we are, here it is again, not under law but under grace. And so we've seen Paul deal with that over the last few weeks, and he's going to deal with it again today because he's going to look at this idea of what it means to not be under the law. He's going to dig into that a little more, especially that idea that we are not under the law. To many of those in Paul's day, uh, especially the Jews, that was a very distasteful and unsettling idea. And so Paul in this, these verses, in this whole chapter really, as well as in other places of course in the New Testament, deals with this issue. So what is the Christian's relationship with the law? Well, he's going to explain it to us and he begins his argument here in verses 1 through 6 with a statement that all of his readers could and can agree with. He lays down, our first point here is a legal principle. Now this is not particularly a, a only Christian principle. It's just a principle of law in general. He says in verse 1, or ver, yes, verse 1, he says, or do you not know? And by the way, when he says that, he shows us that he's continuing this discussion on into chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's the general principle. He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, and that would be everyone. And in this case, we talked about those three aspects of the, the idea of law. In this verse, he's using the law in another way. And this is a general understanding of law. He's not necessarily talking about the moral law or any of the other types of law. He's talking about it in a very general law of the land kind of way. The laws of society, the laws of Roman society. And here's the principle that he gives. He says the law, again, just the civil laws of society, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. A very simple statement to begin with. A very simple um, principle that he lays down to start with. The law applies to people in a state, in a nation, any particular person, only as long as they live. You can't go to a graveyard and cite someone for loitering. This is a baseline for Paul's argument, and it's, and it's very simple. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's the first point. Very easy, very simple. He moves on and continues that with the second thing, which he gives a cultural example in verses 2 and 3. So from that general principle, he brings up a specific example from the world of his day. It's still very general, and we could use the same principle today, it's true, 
The general principle is the same, and the cultural example is appropriate as well. Although we will see uh, some, some biblical aspects of law uh, creeping in here as Paul begins to move towards his main statement in verse 4. But he says in verse 2, after laying out this legal principle, he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if he marries another man, or if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So for his example, Paul selects a law concerning one of the most fundamental human relationships, the laws concerning marriage. And we'll see as we get into verse 4 that this is not a totally arbitrary um, example that he chooses. But his argument is very simply this, that as long as a woman's husband is alive, he is her husband, she is his wife, and if she leaves him and marries someone else while he is still alive, she would be breaking the law, and both the civil law and God's law, and considered an adulteress. An adulterer, a concept that's reinforced in Scripture by Jesus himself. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife, so it's, it's flipped around here, not talking about uh, the woman, but focusing on the man, but it says, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So, Paul keeps it very simple in that, and and Paul doesn't get into the discussion of of proper divorce and improper divorce. He'll deal with that in a different area. But here he just lays this out that while a woman is married, and it would work the other way around as long as a man is married, and as long as their spouse is alive, they are married to that person, and they can't go out and, and be married to someone else. The takeaways from this are... I think, first of all, we would want to mention that, and we can just say it here as they say it, that, the marriage, that marriage is intended to be for life. One man, one woman, as long as they live, till death do they part. But secondly, and I think more specifically to the context here, he's saying that a woman, and he's just using the woman here, it's not anything that's going to go on about the woman particularly. But he says, a woman who is married is bound by law, that's the important part, to her husband while he lives. Neither she nor he is free to leave the marriage and marry another. And again, there are a couple of situations where divorce is permitted by Scripture. That's another topic. That would just muddy the waters here. But Paul says that if she does, if she does leave her husband while he's still alive and marries another, that she will be called an adulteress. Now, if you're reading there in verse 3 in the ESV, you see it says, it translates this, if she lives with another man. And that has other connotations for, for us today. Actually, the better translation of that is if she is joined to, that is if she marries another man while her husband is still alive that she is called an adulteress. But, and here's the point at the end of verse 3, but if her husband dies, when that death occurs, look there, she is free from that law. What law? Well, the law that says that she can't marry another person. If her husband dies, that law is no longer in effect because of the general principle in verse 1 that the law is not or is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So when a death occurs, there's a change. That's what Paul's getting at here. There's a change in the status of the woman that he's talking about here. And therefore, at the end of the verse, if she marries another man after her husband dies, she is not an adulteress. She is free then to marry another So Paul gives this example uh, to explain the general principle and to further his argument as he moves from this into verse 4, as he gives to us in verse 4 the Christian application. 
the Christian application. And here is where he answers the question about the Christian's relationship to the law. And it comes right from what he has just laid out. Look at in verse 4, he says, likewise. So just, just as in that last verse, in that same situation, and just as in the, the legal principle that he gave, in a similar, though not identical way, as the woman dies to the law of marriage when her husband dies, Paul says in verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. You have died to the law, Christian. There's been a change, Paul says, in your relationship to the law because of a death. And the death in view here is is your relationship to the law. Now, that death is based on another death, the death of Christ, but the, the death that he's talking about here is the death of your relationship to the law. So now, as Paul brings his argument to this specifically Christian application, when he speaks about the law, now he's talking about the moral law, because now he's talking about you as a Christian and the law as God's moral law. In chapter 6, remember, Paul Paul's message was, you, Christian, have died to sin, right? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Which meant that, if, that, that you have died to the bondage of sin. You have died to that whole realm of sin. It is no longer your master. Remember the last couple of weeks. You have been freed from it when you were redeemed by Christ. And now, Paul says something very similar in chapter 7. There he said, you have died to sin. Here he says, you have died to the law. You have died to the law in the same realm that you have died to sin. You have died to the law as an oppressive burden that you must try to keep in order to earn a right standing with God. Now, of course, you could never do that anyway. You could never live up to the law enough to earn a right standing with God. And Paul is saying you don't have to. You've been freed from that. You've been released from that. Because of that death now, you are free to be joined to another. Just as, and this is very important, just as you are not condemned by your sin, from verse 6 and verse, or chapter 3, You, Christian, are not any longer condemned by the law. Paul's going to summarize that at the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 8, when he says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How would we be condemned? We would be condemned because of our failure to keep the law. And if there is no condemnation anymore, then then there is no... Nothing from the law that is left to condemn us. And we know that is because Christ has borne all of that. He has taken all of that. He suffered your condemnation. Paul is saying that our relationship to the law and our necessity of keeping the law in order to be right with God is gone. We are not under the law, as he said up in chapter 6 verse 14, but under grace. Grace is what makes us right with God, not keeping the law. And notice again that this is not a command here in verse 4. It is a glorious statement of redemptive fact. He says, you also have died to the law. It is done. It has happened. A done deal. A fait accompli. At one time you were under bondage to the law, therefore under the curse of having broken that law. But now that that state of affairs is gone because of the death, something something has happened that has affected your 
your relationship to the law. And that is what Paul pictures as a death. A full and final break with the law as a taskmaster to serve. You are free from that. Now, I feel like stopping here and having the the elders lock the doors so that nobody leaves at this point and doesn't hear the rest of what we're talking about because you have to hear the rest of it or you can end up in error. But we won't. Just watch them, Jim. How does this take place? Paul says in verse 4 that that this takes place, this fact that you have died to the law takes place, he says, through the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Sometimes that means the church. It doesn't here. It is through Jesus himself, who Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, who bore our sins in his body on the tree. It is through him. It is through Jesus, whom Galatians 4.4 says was born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that this has been done. Through the work of our Lord Jesus, the curse of the law was removed. The curse of our breaking the law, or that comes from our breaking the law. And the burden of, of keeping that law as a means of righteousness, a, a burden which neither they nor we were able to bear, that has been removed, is Paul's statement here. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3.13. And Paul says that, as he hinted at above in verses 2 and 3, he says, we have died to the law so that you may belong to another. Remember the woman, if her husband died, if there was that death, then she was free to be joined to another. Paul's saying that's the case here too. So that being freed from the law, we are freed, as it were, to belong to another, to marry another, to be bound to another. Our old relationship with the law is done away with so that we can have a new relationship with another. And with whom? Well, it's with Christ. He says right here, Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Who is that? That is Jesus. You are bound to him. You are wed now to him. And that, Paul says, is for yet another reason that he's going to point for. Listen to this. Specifically, Paul says, our dying to the law as a means of a right standing before God, dying to the law through the body of Christ is done for a reason. And the reason is this at the end of verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, if you were here for chapter 6 last week, we talked about fruit. We talked about the different kinds of fruit. Back in verse 22, remember, Paul compared the fruit of your old life with the fruit of your new life. The fruit of your old life was rotten fruit. It was fruit, he said, which, led, which leads to death. But the good fruit, Paul said, which we now get, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So now, because we are free from the law, we are dead to the law, we are free to marry another, Christ, and we have. Now we are free to bear fruit to God. Genuine, good fruit. But that couldn't happen until we were out from under that bondage to the law, till we were off of that hamster wheel on which we ran and ran and ran and never got anywhere. Because just as no one is justified by the law, Paul said in chapter 3, verse 20, so too no one is sanctified by the law. Our bearing fruit to God comes only after we have died to the law and have become married to Christ, which happens when we are justified, when God justifies us, when he saves us. And we must. 
bear fruit to God. Because that's what we have been freed from the law to do. Paul isn't saying, this is the reason I was talking about locking the door, Paul isn't saying that we are are freed from our bondage to the law so that we can just be done with it and sin however we want, but so that we might serve God to whom we are slaves. Our old legalism is not replaced with antinomianism. Ephesians 1.4 and Romans 8.29 both say that the reason for our salvation is that we might be what conformed to the image of Christ. That speaks of our sanctification, to bearing fruit for God. At the end of Ephesians 2, or the, the end of verse 10 of Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the fact that we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus so that we might do good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to do. And that's what Paul is talking about here. As the reason for our being freed from the law. So in what sense then are we freed from the law? In what sense have we died to the law of God? In this, that the curse of the law, the curse of our breaking it, has been removed because that curse was borne by Christ. And we have been freed from the burden of trying to keep the law as a means of being right with God. That is removed because our righteousness comes through the life of Christ. His obedience being reckoned as ours. See, so, so for our relationship with God, our, our positional relationship, our right standing with God, we do not have to try to keep the law because A, we can't keep the law, and B, because someone else has kept the law for us. And so we bear fruit for God. Remember that as we have been freed from being slaves to sin, we have become slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. Likewise, as we have died to the law, that has taken place so that we might bear fruit to God. So finally then, and, and that's the crux of this. That's the high point of this. The verses before lead up to it, and now the last two verses uh, expand on it. So in verses 5 and 6, Paul expands and he explains this more by mentioning what we were like before and after this all-important death took place, our death to the law. First, he looks at us before conversion in verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, remember we talked about that before, that means in our pre-conversion days. It doesn't mean after we were Christians, but before we became victorious Christians. It means before we were saved, pre-conversion, when we were under Adam and in Adam, before we were saved, when we were under the law, when we were slaves to sin, when we were under the dominion of sin, during that time, Paul says, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now in that is an amazing statement. He says that before we were saved, our sinful passions, which refers to our desires, our sinful desires, our sinful appetites, our, our, our giving ourselves to the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. All of those things, he says, were working in us and they were causing us to bear rotten fruit, which we had talked about last week. But he says that they did that as they were aroused by the law. These sinful passions, Paul is saying, which are opposed to God's law, are somehow actually inflamed and stirred up by the law. The very law that prohibits sin, Paul is saying, actually encouraged us to sin. 
Sin took advantage of God's law, which we will read is holy and righteous and good. Sin took advantage of that law to work in us more sin. And we're going to see in coming sermons that this is not because there's anything wrong with the law, as I said. It is holy and righteous and good. But this is a picture, a statement about the depth and the power of our depravity before God saved us. A picture of the the depth and the power of our depravity, of the sin that dwelt in us, that, that it finds in the very prohibitions and the commands of God's law a motivation to sin against that law. What a picture of rebellion that is. That we, before we were born again, wanted to do what we were specifically called not to do. And the fact that we were called not to do us made us want to do it more. That's rebellion. Right? Parents, have you ever had your children want to do anything just because you said do the other thing? That's kind of the idea here. If you look down at verse 15, Paul says, very famous words, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. But here, Paul talking about our pre-conversion self living in its sinful passions, it was just the opposite. The good that we were called to do, we didn't want to do. But we wanted to do just the opposite. And so we did. We worked to bear fruit for death, as he says here. As he said in chapter 6, verse 21, we, we worked to bear sinful fruit that whose end is death. That's what we were like. That's what you were like. But then there was a death. There was a change of relationship. Your relationship to the law has changed. And in verse 6, we see how that works out. Paul now says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we have been released from the law. Freedom. We are no longer under that jurisdiction of the law as a means of being right with God. We are no longer under the pressure of having to strive to keep the law in order to win God's favor. We have received God's favor by being united with His Son. We are not under law, but we are under grace because we are recipients of grace. Because we are saved by grace Paul said back in chapter 3, freely justified by His grace. And as we have died to sin, we have died to the law. As Paul says, we have died to that which held us captive. The law held us captive because we can't keep it. Because we are sinful people. That is what bondage to the law did. It held you captive to our own inadequate performance of it. And that brings the curse of the law. And therefore, being free from the law, we are free from the curse. And because of that, or rather for the purpose of that, as Paul says here, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now it speaks, Paul speaks, of how it is we serve God. Before, before we were recipients of grace, when we were in our sin, when we were under the law still, the way that we served was in the old way of the code. How, we, how well we did in relation to God's law, which we all know is not good. See, so, so that we serve in the new way. There Paul is again saying, you got to serve somebody. We still serve, but now we serve in a new way, Christian. We serve with a new motivation, since we are not under law, but under grace. We serve God 
Not to become saved, not to stay saved, but because we are saved. And now we also serve with a new ability because we serve, Paul says, in the new way of the Spirit. Not in the old way of the written code. Not by our flesh just striving to keep the letter of the law, but we serve God through the power of the Spirit, through the new way of the Spirit who dwells in every Christian. We do not require the pressure of the law for us to serve, but we now, by God's grace, serve from the motivation of love and gratitude to God who worked and works in us. So the question is then, since we're free from the law, do we become antinomians? Are we done with the law completely? Well, no. I hope that was already an answer forming in your mind. Then what is the purpose of the law for Christians? Well, we need to note that, or else we end up in error. We need to note that that with our new motivation and our new ability and our resources for serving God, the question is, where do we look or do we look for another content of how we serve God, how we bear that fruit for God? And the answer is, no, we don't look anywhere else. For that, we still look to God's moral law because He doesn't change and it doesn't change. We look to the commandments. We look to the teaching of Christ. We look to the teaching of the apostles. We look to the commands that God gives us in His moral law. We still look to God to see what obedience and service to God looks like. But our progress... Our actual service derives from a different source. It derives from the Spirit, not from the law. It derives from an internal prompting, an internal working, not a merely external one. In Jeremiah chapter 31... Jeremiah writes this, that behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So this is the, the, old, the new covenant passage from Jeremiah. He says, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, interestingly enough, as Paul had talked. But this is the covenant that I will make with the household of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law which had been what? Outside. It had been written. It had come from outside. But he says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This is pointing to the same thing that Paul is saying here. We serve not in the old way of the written code, that's the old covenant, but in the new way of the Spirit. You, Christian, are freed from the law as a means of righteousness because Jesus Christ is your means of righteousness. Now, listen very carefully here. As you have died to the law, you are freed from the condemnation of the law. If you are in Christ Jesus, united to Him, that condemnation that came from you breaking the law is forever in your past. Leave it there. That is the freedom that Christ died for you to be able to enjoy freedom to serve Him from the Spirit, through the Spirit, and not from the written code. That is the means of us serving God today with joy. To serve Him in that freedom that Jesus died to give you. Let your sin grieve you. Let your sin even shame you let your sin lead you to 
confession and repentance before the Lord. Let your sin do all of those things, but Christian, do not let your sin condemn you. That's what it means to be a Christian. To condemn you, that is the work of the law, and you have died to the law. You have become married to another, him who has been raised from the dead. And so, Christian, in the midst of your sin even, flee to Christ and his, flee to his mercy. Flee to the assurance that he has borne all of your condemnation that you deserved. But do not make a mockery of Christ and his work by putting yourself back under the law as far as its ability to condemn you. We'll see it again in chapter 8, verse 1, but I'm going to say it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Then there is no condemnation for you. Do you continue to sin? Yes. Is there condemnation for you for those sins? No. Why? Because your Savior bore the condemnation. You will not meet the requirements of the law even as a Christian. You can't. I can't. Paul couldn't. He's going to talk about it in the second half of the chapter. But we are also set free from finding our worth and our value and our joy and the basis for our right relationship to God in our obedience to the law. Because your worth and your joy and your relationship with God is grounded in Christ Jesus and in the grace of God that united you to Him. Again, does that mean that we are done with the law? No. The law tells us how we are to live. But are we able to to do it? Are we able to live it because the law tells us to do it? No. We are able to do it to the degree that we are because the Holy Spirit works in us and sanctifies us by grace. You are dead to the law, dead to its power to to, to condemn you. Rejoice in that. Worship the Lord for that. As we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, remember that, that your condemnation has been removed. That's the joy and the freedom of serving God as a Christian. And to that, we all must say, Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that through Christ we have been freed from the law that its power to condemn us is gone. We pray, Father, that you would help us to rejoice in that fact. We pray that we may not seek to put ourselves back under bondage, but to serve you and to bear fruit for you in the freedom of knowing that the Spirit works in us and that our place with you is, is secure in Christ Jesus. Help us to never denigrate your law. Help us to never think that we... Do not need to turn to your law to see how to serve you, but help us never to see our service of the law as being our means of being right with you. We pray, Lord, that we would remember the grace that you have shown through Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you have sent. And it is in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen.